and welcome back to the show this week. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for April 18th, 2018. We've got a lot to get to this week, but first up, it is the day after. And hopefully for everyone listening, it is the day after you made that tax deadline. And I thought just before that fades from our memory, I would put out a few bullet facts to keep in mind. These are things that I think you don't hear about that often. And I tweeted these out yesterday. You can follow me actually on Twitter to see them. And my Twitter handle is very, very secretive. It's at Jonathan Tassini, very secretive as you can tell. And so let's just run through these tweets, and then you can pick those up again on Twitter. And they come via our friends at the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy. Uh, Those folks have been on the podcast a lot. And fact number one, the U.S. tax burden could still rise 30% across the board and still be below the OECD average and the OECD is the collection of countries, mostly the industrialized countries. And that point is important because you have heard a million times by the right wing and unfortunately some Democrats that the burden on U.S. people and certainly corporations, and we'll come to that, is so high compared to the rest of the world, and that is just false. Factoid number two. Half of the Trump GOP tax cuts will go to the top 5% of taxpayers. In 2018, the top 1% will receive an average annual tax break of more than $48,000, compared to about $800 for the middle 20%. And again, the top 1% is going to get $48,000 in tax breaks compared to the middle 20% who are just going to get $800. Factoid number three, making America great again? Well, in fact, in 2018, foreign investors collectively are going to net $47 billion in tax breaks from the Trump GOP tax law compared to the taxpayers in this country at the bottom 60% who will only receive $41 billion in total. And factoid number four, You've probably heard something akin to this. Many major profitable corporations like Amazon paid nothing, that is zero, in federal income taxes in 2017. And in fact, what corporations will pay in 2016 will be below the OECD average as a share of the gross domestic product, and it could become the lowest of any developed country thanks to Trump. And the last factoid number five, and this is an important one, dreamers pay lots in taxes. In fact, undocumented immigrants contribute 8% of their incomes in state and local taxes on average, which is higher than the average 5.4% paid by the richest 1% of taxpayers. So dreamers and those undocumented immigrants are contributing far more to the economy, far more to the tax burden in state and local taxes than the richest 1% of taxpayers. And yeah, it's nice to talk union victories, isn't it? They're not that often and frequent, unfortunately, in these times. So last month, you may remember, we dug into the campaign by the Transport Workers Union to represent 5,000 flight attendants 
at JetBlue Airlines. And woohoo, there is a win. Yesterday, the ballots were counted and the union crushed it. The workers won and the vote count was 2,661 in favor of the union and only 1,387 people voted no. So that's basically a two-to-one victory, which is a very sizable victory in any union organizing campaign. And 5,000 flight attendants, that's a huge unit. I mean, if there was such a victory every single day, you'd add about, well, I guess my math would say 1.5 million, over 1.5 million new union members. So just moments after the vote was announced, I spoke to three flight attendants, Lindy Wade, who has been with the airline for 13 years, first based at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City for about a year and a half, and then she moved up to Boston. Michael Zuyas has been a JetBlue flight attendant since 2002, and he's also based at JFK, and he also worked for America West and Aer Lingus before joining the organizing effort eight years ago. So he's been at it for a long time. And finally, Robinson Fernandez, who has been with the airline for two years, and he as well is based at JFK. And Lindy, Michael and Robinson, obviously, congratulations, uh, certainly on my behalf and all my listeners. I, I thought we would start by the most fascinating thing to me in your organizing campaign, and your victory has been tr- just tremendous in terms of the vote. And what fascinated me from the beginning was the notion of organizing flight attendants who are spread all over the country. You're often on planes at any given time. And I wonder if you can give some insight as to how you were able, without giving away you know, state secrets, as they say, but how do we, were you able to connect with your fellow flight attendants? And what was it that was so persuadable to bring this great victory? Maybe we'll start with Lindy. Well, I would say that social media was a big driving force in how we networked with each other. It was such a game changer, uh, I believe, just because when you speak to something, to a cause over social media, everybody can get behind it. They can like it. They can engage in the conversation um, and feel like they're not alone in their viewpoint. So I I would definitely say that social media was... um, part of that. And, you know, another aspect is the flight attendants are conversational as it is. So even if I haven't seen a flight attendant for two years, it's like we'd never left each other. Mm. So that, um, that had a lot of play in it as well. Michael. Yeah. Just to add on that, it, it is a challenge when you have such a large work group spread across the country. And we looked at the different social media platforms that we could use. And some of those platforms were public so that all the flight attendants could see the messaging. And then we had internal platforms so that we'd be able to organize, create, refresh the team because this has been a a multi-year campaign and um, really keeping daily contact with each other, updating each other, seeing what was working, what's not working, and just using technology to our advantage. And that was a big a big key in our win today. And is that how you saw it as well, Robinson? Yeah, I think uh, there, there are two major aspects that uh, led us to our win. Uh, as, as Lindy and Michael stated, social media being such a uh, prevalent tool in today's uh, society, 
we use that to our advantage. Specifically, my my task was uh, using Facebook to uh, as a messaging format or, or form to speak to our uh, supporters and our activists alike as to why the it's imperative that we unite to speak to current uh, concerns and occurrences in the company that needed to be addressed. Um, and and just you know that that in itself was was imperative. Uh, then on top of that, uh, I think um, uh, our team of activists, as you mentioned, it's pretty difficult to get fights together in one spot, especially when it's 5,000 of us spread across the nation. We needed to build a team of activists uh, that um, you know were present and available in each and every single one of our bases before we can move forward with any sort of uh, uh, you know car drive or any uh, you know election drive. And then without that, we wouldn't have been able to. Uh, to have one uh, in the fashion that we did today. And a couple of points that each of you brought up that I thought uh, maybe were, you want to talk a little bit more about. Lindy brought up, you brought this point up, which I thought was fascinating, which I learned as a flyer myself. I once spoke to, I like to talk to the flight attendants on the flight to as a union person. I like to find out what's up with them. And I was flying, I guess I will mention the airline on Delta. And what I learned was actually that oftentimes flight attendants don't know each other and you might not know that person. I thought that you all know each other, you fly as a team, but your your point that you just said a moment ago that it could have been two years since the last time you saw a particular flight attendant. So it's not as if you're seeing each other all the time. Correct. And the interesting thing about it too is I think you can kind of lump flight attending in with uh, professions like hairstylists or bartenders um, in the fact that we have a really compressed time frame to get to know each other. So when we get into the galley, although I may not have known somebody, I will know their whole backstory in about five to 10 minutes. <laughs> and if we work together for a couple hours, next thing you know, it's like we're best friends, you know, if you get along, obviously. But it really, um, it's like, it's, and very compressed, and we really get to the heart of what makes each other tick, and that's where the activist network that we had really came into play. Because, um, you know, we we trained all of our activists in in ways to engage and you know how to talk to people, which we already knew how to do, but how to steer that conversation towards the union conversation. And once we kind of got that locked down and got every activist on the same page and knew who we could trust uh, to get that you know conversation going, it really um, created this vast network of of people all kind of having the same types of conversations with each other. So that really helped. And Michael, you referenced uh, before we got on air, when you emailed me, you told me that you'd been at, as part of this organizing effort for eight years. So to your point, you really had to hold people together for a very long time, people who are far flung and over a course of many years to keep this thing going. It was a challenge because the, the flight attendants uh, want fa- want fast results, and they don't understand, or they may not understand, certain metrics and goals need to be met in order to succeed. And they were just interested in when are we going to file? When are we going to file? Let's just vote. Let's just vote. And we had to keep stepping back and explaining, like, listen, we don't even have enough cards to file yet. This, this, we had multiple car drives. Um, due to due to many reasons, their lack of support because maybe the company hadn't done so many 
negative things in a short period of time, like the past year, but also lack of help because people are afraid to help. They don't have the time to help. And there was burnout. Our, our lead team um, lost members over the years because they get burnt out or frustrated that we're not succeeding. And then we just find a new match. And that's basically what we did this last time. It's just keep refreshing, find a good core group of people that can keep it positive, that can agree, but still find a solution in the end. And and it works. And it is hard. I mean, I've seen many, many union organizing campaigns over uh, many years. And to your point, it's so hard to keep a team together. You know, people have their own lives. They have families. uh, And you think about your folks who are traveling all across the country, just trying to keep their schedules together, their uh, business together, the fact that they're working, uh, again, from coast to coast. It's a really tough challenge. And yet you were able to refresh people over time and you end up with this incredible victory. So something really clicked and worked. And I assume that had a lot to do with people just being fed up, being paid below average compared to many of the airlines. Not just pay, just like work rules. If you look at our, the company has never provided us in-depth comparisons. They'll only give you a little, they'll only point at one thing. They won't provide a booklet of comparisons. Whereas unionized uh, work groups get a clear comparison. So if if once we get that data out there, we'll be able to show that our our wages are below industry average. They our our work rules rest duty time. They are not as um, they're they're more loose compared to unionized workers. So that helps the company profit, but it also burns out the flight attendant. Mm-hmm. Did you want to jump in, Robinson? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, just with um, it, it, with the activist team, something that was imperative was uh, continue, continuously recruit individuals. There were always individuals that wanted to help, um, and uh, well, there's there's always that difficult aspect of you need to have this individual get it. We want to make sure that the individual that's joining our team isn't doing so just for pure, you know, uh, self-interest, but uh, also wants to help the work group. Um, and uh, there, the continuous, you know, refreshing of the team happens naturally. Um, you just have to keep that, uh, keep those efforts up to uh, uh, have great recruiters out there looking for great activists at all times, um, and uh, take those great activists and make them great uh, organizers. Um, and I think part uh, something that made that so easy at JetBlue's is our crew members naturally want to help. Um, it's, it's what makes us a little bit different than some some of the other uh, work groups. Um, and in terms of uh, other airlines, our, our crew members are generally uh, very involved in the community. Um, and for many of them, they, they saw this as another aspect to help, uh, not an outside community, but a community within uh, that, that that they themselves are part of. Yes, and it's by nature in the work you do that, that it is about helping people and aiding people and serving people. So it comes in a certain way, um, part of the turf and part of the territory of the job itself. So turning towards the future, um, uh, one of the things that I suppose you um, reckon from the victory, the fact that it is a two to one victory, 
it seems to me helps you in now this going forward because now the challenge is to get the first contract. And in many places where there's a closely divided workforce, you know, where the election is 51% to 49%, it's easy for the company then to drag things out and try to frustrate people and then ultimately a year later vote the union out. But you've got such a strong victory in hand. Do you see that really helping getting a strong first contract? Lindy, maybe we'll start with you. Absolutely. Um, you know, obviously, the higher the percentage that you vote in the union with, it directly equates to negotiating power. Uh, that's pretty much a given. And the fact that we won with 66 percent is uh, not only heartwarming, but I think it's definitely going to help us at the negotiating table. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to. Uh, the pilots. You're allowed. Pilots you're allowed won. to. You're allowed to say, by the way, woohoo! You know, you're allowed to celebrate at the same time. <laughs> we, <laughs> yes, absolutely. We allow. You know, we allow cheering on this pro- broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. You know, and I just wanted to touch base on something else as well, um, and just to give a shout out to the the actual lead organizing team that did this. We stayed in contact twenty four seven. We had a Facebook Messenger thread going. That it's, you know, some of us are night owls, some people work red eyes, some people are early mornings like myself, and, you know, I would take care of addressing any issues that came up in the morning. It it was literally a 24-7 operation, so I just wanted to give a little shout out to the lead organizing team for that. That's fantastic. And Michael, go ahead. To help us, like, there's different ways to break it down, because the first relationship the flight attendant has is their initial classmates, and then they go on to... um, making other relationships with the people that they fly with probably multiple times due to their seniority and while they're on reserve. And then maybe they're in a crash pad with other flight attendants. So we we looked at we looked at those relationships and saying, okay, who is our who is our activist, who is our organizer and who can they contact? So we really try to like build a tree, if you'd call it. Uh, and make connections as best we could to branch out because it, it is hard getting it, it was very hard getting our message out and through but we 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 figured it out <laughs> well obviously the vote shows that you did an outstanding uh job and so robinson looking forward to the the future what are you hearing from already i know it's a short time that you've just been told that you've won with this great uh majority with the two to one majority i assume you're already in touch with folks either by text or talking to people what's the mood about going forward now to win that first contract uh, you know, I think um, just looking at the social media, everyone is really excited. Um, there is elation all over the network. People were standing by, literally taking time off, uh, forming uh, parties and, and groups just to wait and see what the results were. People are elated. There are people who were very quiet about how they they were thinking of voting. And we have seen people come out of the woodwork <laughs> basically at this point to basically express how grateful they are and how excited they are to be part of the uh, uh, over 85 percent of uh, uh, unionized flight attendants in, in the United States. And then um, they're very much looking forward to it. Uh, speaking back to what you were uh, talking about uh, in terms of uh, uh, this percentage, uh, I'll be quite honest, I, I miscalculated um, at the time of announcement and I thought uh, – that we had won by 55%. And while that's a win, 55% uh, was scary to me because immediately in my mind, what came to my mind was uh, decertification in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 
to, to you know finally get the correct numbers and, think, and here's 66 percent that's that sends a message to the company that um you know while we uh are grateful for the opportunity to work at this airline uh there, there's something that's gone wrong and it's and we we feel that this this is the best way that we can go forward and ensuring that the company is not only profitable and, and and meets its margins but we are also protected our families are protected our livelihoods are protected um and and you know we're excited. We're looking forward to getting to the bargaining table as quickly as possible. And uh, yeah, uh, we're really excited about that. I, I just want to take this opportunity to thank Michael and Lindy for their efforts on behalf of the team. These two have been here uh, doing this for uh, over eight years, um, and they have they have stuck it out without burning out. Um, I think on behalf of the whole team and the entire work group, we want to be want to express our thanks to, to these two individuals. In addition to that, we'd also like to thank TWU as well. Uh, they have provided support all along the way um, in the form of, you know, uh, supporting our work group as a whole, sending letters to JetBlue Corporate on behalf of flight attendants, um, and also in the in the mentor type scenario to Steve Roberts, Sean Doyle, uh, John Stevenson, all of them. They really helped kind of guide us through this process, and we're eternally grateful for that as well. Can I just add to that too? I'm sorry. <laughs> That just the fact that 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 they that they stuck with us year after year, we kept coming up short, and they stuck with us. And we were like, "All right, we'll take a short break, and we'll start up again." But they always were were by our side, ready to answer our questions, to guide us, to to give us insight. But it was never how the company made it how they wanted to seem like this there's this third party TWs coming to infiltrate and take your hard earned money. That's the that was the negative the company tried to to uh paint. When in reality it was just TW is waiting on the sidelines telling us, listen, if you if you want to to put uh a contract in place and get protections and the benefits of the union this is this is what you need to do and we're going to help you and as the support increased the resources increased and it worked out beautifully because we have this really historic win that i think will resonate throughout the nation and hopefully ignite more workers to begin to organize and um, form their own unions as well there was just a huge contrast in the messaging, how the company just demonized us and they just ran a completely negative campaign against TWU and basically wouldn't even recognize for the majority of the campaign that there was actually JetBlue flight attendants involved. And that was really frustrating to not even recognize that it's your workers that are unionizing. And in the end, what impressed me and what I was thrilled about was the individual flight attendants finally finding the courage to discuss the union. Because in the past, they, the, the company intimidated, intimidated them to the point where they would be afraid to talk about it on the plane. And that led to the fear of not wanting to sign an authorization card. And just by keeping our message message positive and having that one-on-one face-to-face interactions 
it, it worked and they found their voice. They found the courage to say, hey, you know what? JetBlue is a great airline. We have a great product. We offer great service. We are professionals, but internally, this is not this direct relationship is no longer working for us. So it's time for change. And the company wants to make it union doom and gloom. And I say that's not the case. This is positive change, not only for the flight attendants, but for the company. It's going to be a win-win as long as the company agrees to bargaining good faith and hopefully things will go smoothly. And if I could just give you a little feedback in this sense of um, perspective of union organizing campaigns over the last 30 years that I've witnessed, this is a testament to the great work you've done because the kind of anti-union campaign they ran, which is demonizing the union and the way you described it, is a very, very typical playbook in every single circumstance. And in Unfortunately, in the majority of times, because unions don't have the same access to the workers, as you know, in the majority of times, it works. And the union often loses the election because of how bad the labor law is. And look at what you've all been able to do. Winning two to one in the face of that just says a lot about how good you did your jobs and how great a campaign you led. I think, well, that's, all, I think that's awesome to hear, to hear from Jonathan. Um, we're really excited about what this means. We hope that uh, our our coworkers across the industry, we're specifically eyeing Delta and our flight attendant friends over there. Uh, we hope that they see that this victory is is it could potentially be them. Um, each airline has a and uh, uh, we 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 hear some of the challenges that uh, our friends at Delta are facing, and, and we hope that they will take uh, it, it, that they understand that it's now their turn to to take the next step and and. And unionized and join this this uh, the work group, work group across America uh, of unionized flight attendants. talked a lot on this podcast about the real threats to workers who try to organize unions around the globe. Now, no doubt, things are tough for a lot of people here, and there's a constant corporate warfare against unions in the United States and against workers who try to organize here, as we just heard in the JetBlue instance. But people here don't regularly get murdered for trying to stand up against corporations in the process of trying to get a union. That isn't the case in other countries. And two countries that are especially dangerous are Guatemala and Honduras. And not by mistake, those are two countries where the U.S., at the behest of corporations over many decades, has armed and supported dictatorships. And that legacy now plays out in dozens of acts of violence, including murder, threats of murder, kidnapping, and stalking against people who are trying to organize unions in Guatemala and Honduras. So to talk more about that, let's bring in Alexis de Simon. Alexis is the Senior Program Officer for the Solidarity Center's Americas Region. 
And you know, this whole issue of violence against trade unionists in other parts of the world is really important to talk about because as you well know as a labor person, certainly people here in this country when they're trying to organize a union, uh, union activists or regular workers, they do face threats, say the threat to be fired, but nothing that we see about union activists being murdered in, as we're going to talk about in Guatemala and Honduras and in other parts of the world. And so we have to highlight this because I think it's really critical that labor people here and elsewhere know what's happening around the world. Um, I totally agree with you. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about the really important work of our trade union partners in both countries who have come together to organize trade unionist networks against anti-union violence. And to get right into it, um, you know, in Guatemala and Honduras, and it's not surprising, unfortunately, that there's violence in those two countries. And I trace this back to the involvement of the United States in the way that societies have become repressive, elites have risen to the fore, corporations are very powerful. This tracks back for decades the U.S. involvement on a foreign policy level, but unionists have been targeted for a very, very long time. Uh, I remember when I, in the 1980s, I was part of a labor delegation that went to El Salvador to look at labor rights violations there during the junta, the US supported junta in El Salvador. My point about this is, is that what really needs to be said is the way in which elites and the very rich and powerful corporate elites are essentially um, allowing this to happen and funding and supporting it, right? So there's a lot, a whole lot behind what's happening with the anti-union violence. And yeah, there's historical roots for it. And I can touch on kind of the, the closer roots, right, in near history. But something that makes it really hard for us to say in any kind of objective way who is responsible for the violence, what makes that so hard is that there is a 99% impunity rate in both countries, which means that there aren't conclusive or robust investigations that lead to convictions of the material and especially the intellectual authors of these crimes. And so while it can often be pretty intuitive who seems to be responsible for these crimes. And while um, the victims and survivors can report who they have seen and who they've received threats and attacks from, it's hard to say in any kind of conclusive way who is actually responsible because the governments are not investigating them and they're not holding anybody accountable. Right. There's no judicial system, or at the very least, it's quite corrupt. And I understand your position, so I'm saying this on my behalf. <laughs> and of to course. me, looking looking at this for 20, 30 years' experience, we know how this happens, and we know why it happens. It happens because the elites, the business elites, through the government, whether explicitly they serve in the government or they control the government, those are the people that allow this to happen. As you point out, there's no judicial system that investigates this no police, an honest uh, judicial system that gets to the bottom of this and holds people accountable. And so the way, let's turn right to your report, um, which talks specifically, most recently, we can use this as an example of two union activists who were murdered in Guatemala and one in Honduras. And why don't you talk briefly about each of those instances? 
So before I talk about these three specific cases from 2017, I'd like to just look back a little bit at the historic differences between Guatemala and Honduras, because I think it is important here. Yes, do please in do. Guatemala, in Guatemala, we have seen 87 trade unionists murdered since 2004. But going back, we know that trade unionists were targeted during the Civil War. We know that today there are higher rates of violence in Guatemala than there were during the Civil War. And this trend that we've been documenting since 2004 of attacks and violence and assassinations of trade union leaders, we don't think by any means it's exhaustive. There might be more cases that we're not aware of or that haven't been included in the documentation. That is different from Honduras. In 2008 in Honduras, two trade unionists were murdered, and it was a national and international scandal because trade unionists had not been the the target of violence the way they were in Guatemala for a long time. So when 2008, we saw two trade unionists murdered in Honduras, it it was news, the international community um, responded to it. All of that changed in 2009, the year of the coup, when we saw 33 trade unionists murdered. That number has continued to grow since 2009, um, and we are seeing a really troubling trend where the rates not only of murders, but also of intimidation, of surveillance, of detentions, of physical attacks, of attempted murders, and harassment of union leaders has been steadily growing um, in both countries. And I think it's really important to point out, and you all point this out in your report, you know, part of the reason this is obvious in the United States too, but it's even more so true in countries like Honduras and Guatemala, where people live in such desperate poverty that a union is, it's true in the in the the U.S. as well, but even more so in countries where people live in deep poverty, the union is really the only way for them to have some way of rising out of poverty. And just to quote your statistics, 65 of every 100 Hondurans live in poverty. And this is going uh, statistics from 2016. And 43 of every 100 live in extreme poverty. And in Guatemala, the poverty rate rose 60%. Uh, This is a stat from 2014. So we just know that people are desperately poor in those two countries. Right. People are desperately poor. And what gives working people around the world the capacity to improve their conditions, to improve their wages, to make their jobs safer, to make their communities livable communities, to make sure that there's a work-life balance and parents can take care of their children. What allows that to happen is a strong labor movement. It's collective bargaining. And when the people who are brave enough to speak out on a work site, you know, be it a banana plantation or an apparel factory, or be it street sweepers working for a municipal government, when the person was brave enough to speak up and say, you're not paying us minimum wage, or you're violating our overtime rights, or we're not receiving our proper benefits, it's threatened with firing, it's fired and then is never able to get a job again, or receives attacks against them and their family are threatened with violence or are shot at there's really no chance for anybody's situation to improve. How is a labor movement going to take root? How is a strong union going to represent the workers at a workplace and win anything above the basic minimums if every time someone does, that person is silenced or wiped out? So it's really dangerous for, for the entire country's economic future 
for their economic presence and for the ability of people to have the right to remain in their communities and in their homes if they can't have a living wage. And they can't do that without a union. Right. And so tell us briefly now the three instances of the murders that have, you know, most recently happened, the two in Guatemala and the one in Honduras. Give us a quick sketch of each of them. So the two cases in Guatemala are are very troubling. They're um, pretty emblematic of what has been going on in the country. In the case of the Citra Bremen union leader, which was a um, meatpacking and processing facility, the union had um, been trying to organize since 2016. As soon as they began organizing the workplace union, they faced repression and harassment from the employer. The the union leader who was murdered was the conflict resolution secretary of that union, and he was murdered, I think, 50 meters from the entrance to the factory right after his shift had ended. And so the brazenness of the attack, shooting at not only the the conflicts resolution secretary, but also another union member who was with him and wounded in the attack, um, shows kind of the degree of, of lawlessness, of impunity, and that these anti-union actors, and again, we can't say who exactly did it, but that these anti-union actors know they can do this in broad daylight at the factory gates during a shift change with confidence that they'll be able to, to continue their lives without fear of actually being brought to justice. And that was clearly, when you do that in front of the plant gates and in broad daylight, it's you're sending a clear message. If you uh, step out of line, if you speak out, the same thing will happen to you. Exactly. It was meant to cower the union. Um, we presume to have the union back away from their bargaining demands and to make people who were considering being active in the union rethink that. And the second example? So in the second example, we are looking at the Finca San Gregorio, which was um, an agricultural plantation. Um, And Eugenio Lopez was an elderly gentleman who was leading a protest of a number of rural workers, most of them in their 60s and 70s, protesting the fact that for decades the employer had deducted their Social Security contributions. But instead of paying them into the social security system, they kept them, they stole them. And so you have all these workers who have spent their lifetime doing backbreaking labor on a farm and have never had access to health care as workers. But now as they reach retirement age, find that they have absolutely no access to their social security system, be it retirement benefits or be it health insurance. So it's an extremely vulnerable position. Um, A number of these brave workers gathered to protest um, the theft of these Social Security contributions. They were met with gunfire on the plantation where they were protesting. Two other workers, Bertha Lopez and Israel Mendez, were wounded by the gunfire, and Eugenio Lopez died as a result of this protest action. Unbelievable, and they—they were all they were doing was, and they're older people just standing up for the thought that you stole our money, and we simply want to have our social security. That's uh, that's astonishing. And um, in Honduras, in Honduras, there there was um, a lot of anti-union violence directed, often, you know, for the very 
common union activity of trying to organize a union or trying to win a collective bargaining agreement. That's some of the most prevalent violence that we see. But we also see violence against trade unionists in Honduras as whistleblowers in the public sector and as pro-democracy actors. And so in December of 2017 and in January of 2018, you have a lot of trade unionists who are involved, of course, more broadly with other social movements in the country, with land rights activists, with anti-corruption activists, with human rights organizations. And in that activity um, to protect democracy in the country, one trade unionist from an apparel factory was killed during a pro-democracy protest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's another one, you know, people just trying to stand up for basic democratic rights. And that is a great transition to the topic that I want to end with, and it relates to democracy and, if you will, the politics of trade. You know, one of the reasons that many of us have opposed these so-called free trade agreements, which um, both Honduras and Guatemala have been part of the Central American Free Trade Agreement, one of the reasons we opposed that was that we felt that, first of all, that they were not really about free trade, they were about corporate rights, but let's put that aside, but that there was a fraudulent way in which they were sold. And one of the ways they were sold was that the U.S. government said, hey, you know what we'll do? We'll have all these great labor rights. We'll make sure that people are protected. We will make sure there's going to be some system and people won't be just killed if they're trying to organize a union. But the fact is that the U.S. government isn't even dealing with this or willing to look into this using these trade agreements as leverage. So... In 2008, the Guatemalan trade union movement, together with the AFL-CIO, filed a complaint against the government of Guatemala for failing to enforce its labor rights. This process lasted nine years to reach a final resolution through um, a monitoring and action plan that was intended to help remediate the complaints of the labor movement with the Ministry of Labor and ensure that there was actual rights enforcement. The end result was that in June 2017, a final decision by an arbitration panel was announced, finding in favor of the Guatemalan government and against the Guatemalan labor movement. What this means is that the Guatemalan government can now feel that the pressure is off. They no longer have to adhere to a remediation plan that was drawn up together with the Guatemalan trade union movement and the United States government to try to remediate these issues. Um, since that decision was announced, that is when we have seen the five labor activists who have been shot, and it includes the two murders who we've talked about in Guatemala. So you actually make you reinforce the point, and again, uh, this is my editorializing, and you can sort of be the the reasonable person here. Is that this is a completely a fraud in the sense of, number one, even if you if the decision had come out, let's say, not in favor of the Guatemalan government, it took nine years for this process to take place, during which 
um, the pressure and the violence and the threats continue. So it's not a real process that's aimed at getting swift justice, not to mention that it found in favor of the Guatemalan government. So this whole idea that these trade agreements, not just the Central American Free Trade Agreement, but going back to NAFTA, were sold on the idea to legislators trying to make them comfortable, but also the rhetoric on the part of, by the way, Democratic and Republican administrations, they were sold on the idea that these would be good things, partly because they would help um, institute a judicial system, democracy, and protect trade unions. And it's just not true. So the Solidarity Center, of course, does not take a position in favor or against trade agreements. Uh, I, I understand. But, I understand. Sure. But what I can tell you is that all throughout those nine years, trade unionists have been fired for trying to stand up for their rights, that despite um, a remediation plan that was closely monitored by the U.S. government and their counterparts in Guatemala, with regular feedback from the Guatemalan labor movement of what was really happening on the ground, there continued to be factories that closed and reopened with a new name in order to avoid having union representation. We've seen dozens of trade unionists murdered. We've seen more attacked violently, um, physically threatened, um, or felt their families be threatened as they tried to stand up for basic rights. And so all of this has occurred during um, the the CAFTA complaint process in Guatemala, which eventually ended finding in favor of the Guatemalan government. In Honduras, in 2012, um, the Honduran labor movement together with the AFL-CIO launched a similar complaint about the failure of the Honduran government to enforce labor rights. That case is still ongoing. Okay, given that these processes are this way and we know what the system is like, what is it that one can do or what is it that unionists are going to do around the world to try to protect people from being murdered and killed in these two countries? So we are all part of a global trade union movement. We are all part of a global labor movement. And we know that these are our sisters and brothers in Guatemala and Honduras who are consistently under threat and facing attack and putting their lives on the line just trying to defend basic labor rights and freedom of association. What I would encourage all listeners to do is be alert to the news and to whatever action alerts you get from, I'm sure, the many organizations you may be part of that stand up to defend rights at individual workplaces, rights across in entire supply chains, and that stand up for the rights of individuals who are facing attack because of their activism. of weeks ago, we talked about the debate over who should be the new president of the New York Federal Reserve Board. And also, we touched a bit on the broader power of the Fed. And I thought this was worth a bit more. So let's welcome in Maggie Corser. Maggie is a research analyst with the Center for Popular Democracy. And she's the author of a study entitled, 10 Years After, The Financial Crisis and the New York Federal Reserve District. 
And Maggie, we should just go back a little bit and talk a little more in depth about what we're facing. And it was especially relevant because like you, I see everywhere around the country and certainly when it comes to just the regular person, there's all this chatter about the low unemployment rate and how things are getting better. And they look at a particular statistic to say everybody should be feeling happy. But your report actually points out that we're still recovering from the global financial crisis. Absolutely. You know, and what our report is really trying to lay out um, is that the Fed needs to look at a full range of economic indicators to understand how American families are really doing. You know, um, if you look at headline unemployment rates, um, they do paint a pretty good picture overall. Unemployment rates are low. Um, but as a report outlines, there's really persistent racial disparities. So any data point that is not disaggregated by race in this country will um, be telling an incomplete picture. And in addition, um, you know, so uh, black unemployment rate, for instance, is nearly twice the rate of white unemployment 10 years after the crash. But in addition, you know, the report lays out that uh, by many different indicators, American families are still struggling, in particular African-American and Latino families. And what we're arguing is that the, the Fed needs to look at things like um, part-time workers who want to get full-time work but can only get part-time work, or sluggish wage growth, or a persistent racial wealth gap to really understand um, you know, how people are doing 10 years after the crash. And let's underscore, and this is something you obviously know as a great researcher, that the racial disparities, especially affecting um, African Americans and Latinos, they existed even before the financial crash. This is something that's been endemic in the economy for several decades. And your point is that not only have they not recovered, but they're stuck in a place that is especially true and especially vicious towards people of color. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at every major indicator, so um, wealth, wages, housing rates, all of those things were um, already deeply unequal before the recession. Um, what we're arguing is that, and what the data makes clear is that um, 10 years after the crash and you have Black families who not only have it recovered from where they were before the recession, but in many ways are doing worse. And that that lived experience needs to inform the Fed's policymaking. Um, and in the case of the, the New York Fed appointment fight, really should reflect who, who are in positions of power um, and setting monetary policy in this country. Right. And, and the vast majority of the Fed, and we're not just talking about, obviously, the New York Federal Reserve Bank, which you focused on and which I talked about last week, but these are all the regional Fed banks and certainly the Federal Board of Governors. They are essentially um, white people and mostly men. I think there may be one or two mm -hmm. women on those boards, but it's mostly run by the same elites. And they don't get the economic hardship that people are facing. They're looking at the bond markets and all sorts of you know, basic statistics that power them. And they're used to looking at them as bankers, right? Not as regular people. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the Fed is arguably the most important economic institution in this country right now that's shaping jobs and wages. And our campaign, the Fed Up campaign, is arguing that it really matters which 
people are in positions of power. Um, you know, as you mentioned, in terms of the diversity stats, they're pretty bleak. The vast majority of the Board of Governors, the 12 Reserve Bank presidents and their regional boards are overwhelmingly white men who have ties to the financial industry um, or are Fed insiders. And with that brings real biases and blind spots to the Fed's policies that then in turn hurts workers and families. And I want to pick out um, two or three factoids, if you will, from your report uh, and, and ask you to riff on them a little bit. And but, but before we dive into those, I thought it might be worth, if you can, in one or two minutes, just very briefly, explain to people what the Fed does that's so important to the economy. And I guess let's focus on interest rates. Absolutely. Um, you know, so we tend to use the example of, um, you know, putting your pedal, putting your foot on the pedal for um, when you're driving. And, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is really able to um, determine the, the speed at which the economy is, is going based on the interest rates that they set. So for the last, um, since the Great Recession, they have been lowering interest rates, um, which then in turn supports jobs and boosts um, boost employment, helps more workers. Um, in the last year or so, and especially in the last few months, there's been a push to raise interest rates. There's concerns that um, the Fed claims that that will um, rise with inflation. Um, and we're really arguing that um, that would be detrimental, not just to all workers, but especially to workers of color who are already facing you know, high rates of unemployment relative to the general population. And so let's underscore when people when the Fed raises interest rates, it makes money more expensive, if you will, to borrow. And so companies, therefore, and we're especially talking about companies borrowing, they will tend to reevaluate and potentially borrow less money, invest less money, and therefore job creation declines. I'm putting it in a very yes. simplistic <laughs> fashion. It's true. And, you know, what we're pushing for is a is a tighter labor market. So when there are fewer people who are unemployed, it really increases the bargaining power of people who might be able to ask for a raise, um, might feel more like, you know, inclined to have bargaining power and start a union, um, you know, may, might be able to move to a different job. So it puts pressure on employers in a, in a good way to treat the workers better as well. Mm -hmm. So over to the factoids, here are a few things that uh, blew my mind uh, in your report. The first is you point out that, you know, we were living actually in the worst financial, uh, the worst income inequality in the last 50 years since the Census Bureau actually started looking at those statistics. I remember this going back a number of years ago. And yet there are 6.2 million people more in poverty today than before the financial crash. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it really, I found it staggering when I was looking at the numbers. I mean, you hear about inequality skyrocketing, um, but to put it in real terms, you know, that is many more million people. When you look at it kind of disaggregated by age, many of those are children. Our report focuses on the New York Fed District um, in particular, but you know, across the board, they're just the poverty rates are staggering. And with that, I think the kind of counterpart to that is also that the where people are on the income distribution is really um, 
skewed to the 1%. So in the last 10 years, the report talks about um, the top 1% of all income earners got 23.8% of the income. You know, so to put it in a different way, like the bottom 90% of us on the income distribution are only getting 49% of the income. And the way that translates in people's lived experience is what we're seeing, which is wage stagnation, um, median incomes that, you know, before the recession might have been $2,000 lower. But in, in today, that means that you don't actually, with the rising inflation, you don't actually have um, comparable buying power. So it's a real issue. Right. And I, I was talking in a previous podcast, and my listeners can hear that with the Oklahoma teachers who had walked out last week. And, you know, some of those teachers have two or three jobs just to make ends meet. These are teachers, you know, who are, you know, have yeah. gone through school, who are educated. These are unionized teachers who still have to have two to three jobs in that, especially in that state where the incomes are so low to just make ends ends meet. So, one of the things that you connect to this poverty level and in- income inequality is debt level. And the two factoids that I found, uh, again, astonishing, enlightening, perhaps not surprising, were number one, you point out that 44% of adults could not cover an emergency expense of $400. So it, especially medical expenses that are pretty common um, in this country where we don't have single-payer health care, people have huge medical expenses. And in fact, it was the number one, has been the number one reason that people file for bankruptcy is health care crises. So that emergency expense of $400, 44% can't cover it. And you point mm-hmm. out that national household debt last year was at its highest recorded level. And if my listeners want to sit down, they better on this number, because this is like big numbers, $13.15 trillion. So it's a lot of zeros. <laughs> that's a, that, so both on the inability to cover the emergency expenses and the, the, the debt load, that's a, a key point to your uh, underscoring that we've not recovered from this. And there's a lot, way, a lot of a distance we have to go. Mm-hmm. And really, the, like those things combined, so the kind of financial precarity, um, you know, where there isn't, they go hand in hand. There's financial precarity and, and people really don't have emergency savings and at the same time have an enormous debt load that really impacts people's ability to um, save for emergency expenses, but also just meet their day to day. Um, the ability to have some financial security is difficult when you have income volatility. So the people who can't get full-time work or um, the wages that have just really not grown. Um, so it's a it's a recipe for a very difficult set of experiences for people. And it's something that um, we believe the Federal Reserve and policymakers need to address. Okay. So to wrap up the last question, I w- want to hear what your final thought is about, okay, so let's face it. Um, the Fed is had has been quite not transparent. And in my opinion, Congress has in some way given up its, uh, its responsibility, even though it has the authority to oversee the Fed in a very aggressive way. So what, what's the road forward here to try to open up the Fed and make it behave as it needs to do towards the interests of regular people? Yeah, I mean, the Fed right now is in a moment of pretty unprecedented flux. So you have Jerome Powell 
recently Trump appointed Fed chair, you have a lot of vacancies on the federal board of governors right now. Only three of the seven um, positions are filled, which means Trump, unfortunately, will have four appointments to make. You have in New York this newly appointed Fed chair. So there's just a lot of things in flux at the Fed itself. Um, but what we believe in Fed Up is that we need lead Fed leaders who are going to pursue full employment um, while also regulating Wall Street and the largest financial firms and banks in our country. I think the Fed Up campaign is really premised on the idea that because the Fed is dominated by these uh, big banks and regular people who are struggling in the economy really don't have a say that it's the decisions that the Fed is making are just too important to kind of leave to powerful Wall Street bankers. The campaign is really trying to create an economy that works for all of us with full employment um, and a job for anyone who wants work. And so, you know, people who want to get involved in the Fed Up campaign, um, you know, whatrecovery.org is our website. But in the coming year, activists around the country are going to be continuing to push the Fed to maintain low interest rates, which, like we mentioned, will support um, full employment. Um, also, now with John Williams' appointment at the New York Fed, people are going to be turning to San Francisco to to really pressure um, that bank to appoint a diverse candidate who is independent from um, Wall Street and special interests. And I think, you know, there's a range of different things that we're going to be taking on in the coming year. But the point of our report is that the Fed needs to really look at the data and um, look at the conditions that people are living in in the day to day to inform their policymaking. Now it's time for our weekly robber barons, and we're going to do a quick one this time because of the length of the podcast in general. Our robber barons for the week are the four CEOs of the four major national banks. That's J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup, and Bank of America. And those four are the robber barons of the week because just in the first quarter, because of the ripoff tax law, the corporate tax law, the tax law that was passed by the Republicans that benefits corporations and rich people, because of that tax law, just in the first quarter, those four banks alone earned $2.3 billion. And their CEOs are raking in millions and millions of dollars in pay and benefits, while the people who work for those companies make very, very little comparatively. So that's why those four CEOs of J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and Bank of America are the robber barons of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, our flight attendants from JetBlue Airlines, Lindy Wade, Michael Zuyus, and Robinson Fernandez. 
Alexis De Simone from the Solidarity Center and Maggie Corser from the Center for Popular Democracy. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Please do become a supporter of the podcast. You can do all that at workinglife.org. Click on the podcast tab. Look forward to having you back next week.